I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode has been sponsored by purpose-led communications agency Higginson Strategy. B Corp certified Higginson Strategy creates campaigns it truly believes in. If you would like to know more, please visit www.higginsonstrategy.com. Hello and welcome to Media Confidential, the new weekly podcast from Prospect Magazine, which takes you inside the fascinating, important and sometimes contested world of media. I'm Alan Rusbridger. And I'm Lionel Barber. Today we discuss how media organisations on both sides of the Israel-Gaza border are covering that terrible new conflict after what some Israeli officials called our 9-11. Gunmen rampage through Israeli communities. Dozens of hostages, including women and children, are shown taken back into Gaza. Israelis have never been hit like this before. Following the Hamas incursions and deadly attacks on Israelis inside Israel came the inevitable and destructive military response. Israel's military is bombarding Gaza with airstrikes raining down on Hamas, including command centers located inside apartment buildings. And Gaza is now cut off from all essential services, including electricity, water and food. We consider whether Israeli and Palestinian audiences are getting balanced and nuanced reporting on the conflict and discuss media freedom at a time of war and shocking civilian deaths. We'll also assess how the conflict is being reported in Western media. Media Confidential brings you expert analysis from inside the industry, talking to key names in global media. So listen and follow us wherever you get your podcasts to ensure you never miss an episode. And join us on X, or what we used to know as Twitter, where we are at MediaConfPod. Media Conf Pod. Hello, and uh, Lionel, you look as though you're a bit bleary-eyed and on a different time zone. Let let the listeners in to where you are at the moment. I'm in New York, and you're right. I'm glad that people can't see my bleary eyes. I'm here giving a couple of talks to business audiences about the state of the world, and obviously the Middle East is front and centre. We normally start by asking each other what's been hitting each other's inboxes, but I guess it's the same thing that's been across all media around the world since Saturday morning. Yeah, and I've been writing to sources trying to find out more about what went on in Gaza and how Hamas achieved this extraordinary security breach um, pouring into the kibbutzes. And I got a message from a, a businessman who said, we have kids and grandkids in Israel that are living through these terrible times. It's a small place with two degrees of separation so that everyone knows someone that was murdered or taken hostage. And my granddaughter has been called up in the army along with her friends. That is uh, indeed a sobering reminder of how deeply the, the last few days have impacted 
One Nation. We're now being joined by Esther Solomon, who's editor-in-chief of Haaretz English. She's worked for Haaretz, a liberal Israeli daily and website based in Tel Aviv for 17 years after studying at the University of Cambridge and the LSE. Welcome, uh, Esther. And you've already warned us that you might have to break off from this recording if there are further uh, alerts over Tel Aviv. Esther, just to help understand the context of what we're about to talk about, can you describe Haaretz and where it sits on the political spectrum in Israel? Sure. Haaretz is the sole remaining committed liberal voice in the Israeli media landscape. Proud of its position as a pro-two-states, anti-occupation newspaper, it publishes uh, online and in print uh, every day in two languages. And it's fair to say that you, as a newspaper, have been a persistent critic of Bibi Netanyahu and of especially his current government. Absolutely. From the moment that the uh, Netanyahu government was formed, the most far-right and theocratic government that Israel's ever known, and from the moment that the government announced this sweeping program uh, to enfeeble Israel's judiciary and democracy, we have firmly committed ourselves to the cause of the pro-democracy protest movement. Now, there's been much talk in recent days about how these attacks took uh, Israeli intelligence by surprise. Is it also true to say that it's taken a lot of journalists by surprise, or have there been warning signs over recent months that the present situation was unsustainable? Well, I suppose you could understand that in two different ways. On the one hand, there is no one journalist that you can say predicted what was going to happen. They were much in shock and still are, as any Israeli. Uh, on the other hand, you could say that much of what has been going on here in the last nine to ten months should give some kind of sign that something very, very bad was happening in terms of the government's extremist bent to begin with, but also its distraction with ideological or personal issues the emphasis on provocations in the West Bank and in entrenching the occupation. In terms of specifically Hamas invading southern Israel and massacring more than 1,200 people, no. Esther, when something like this happens, something as cataclysmic as the violence that's exploded over the weekend, hundreds of people killed, it's been called Israel's 9-11 I was in New York after 9-11 and I, I lived in the country afterwards and the sense that kind of normal discussion, debate is halted and everybody has to rally round the flag, that presents tremendous difficulties for journalists and editors. Can you talk about that? Yes, certainly. First of all, I think that specific analogies are not particularly helpful. In proportional terms, this is actually far, far bigger in terms of the loss of life than 9-11. And the entire context of the situation is somewhat different as well, obviously. In terms of the rallying around the flag effect, funnily enough, because there has been so much opposition to the government, that is not something that is just going to happen in a knee-jerk way. In fact, if you watch Israeli TV at the moment, it is full of bereaved families, very angry survivors of uh, the attacks in the south, saying, where was the government while we were under fire and while our relatives uh, were being killed? You can't also forget that 
roughly 60, if not more, percent of the population was out on the streets every single week for the last uh, 39, 40 weeks, calling for the government to fall. But then now there is a kind of recalibration, obviously. There is also enormous anger and fear about what will happen if Israel does not find some way to prevent this happening again and therefore you get to the question of what is the public debate going to be about the extent of uh, Israel's attacks on uh, the Hamas infrastructure in Gaza and that's going to be a very very difficult debate because they're to do uh, something that is equivalent to a kind of regime change is inevitably going to cause enormous loss of life on the Palestinian side. But just staying with the topic Esther when you have so many people living together in a very small space and you have 300,000 Israelis being mobilized. 350 now, actually. Everybody knows somebody who, a, a family who's grieving. That must put tremendous pressure on a news organization to abandon any pretense of neutrality. And basically, if you like, to suspend criticism of the sitting government, doesn't it? It does put certain kinds of pressure. But on the other hand, I can speak for Haaretz itself. We have never allowed the ongoing conflict with the Palestinians to ever silence our criticism of government policy or of the occupation. And if you read what we are putting out now, you know, some of the editorials that we have published over the last few days, they are calling for Netanyahu to resign and for the you know, for the government to make way for a government that actually has the public interest uh, at heart. On the other hand, uh, we also want to faithfully reflect what is actually happening in the country. And as you say, we're a small country in terms of its population. We're a highly networked society. We are a society where people have all sorts of different circles of friends, family and acquaintances the army as well, which obviously it's a conscript army, so that is another huge circle of acquaintances that people know. And also people are more mobile because it's a small country as well. So then families that live in Tel Aviv know people that live in the south as well. It's only an hour and 20 minutes away. You know, this is, these are not vast areas. When you say Israel's south, you know, it's not the Wild West. We're talking about, you know, as far as some people might commute into London to go to work every day. One other question about balanced reporting, um, Esther. How do you guide your reporters when they're writing about, as reporters, about Hamas? We're consistently called Hamas a terror organisation. There has been, um, you know, various different kinds of levels of, of, of waves of analysis, both in Haaretz and everywhere else. And certainly one of the key uh, narratives adopted by Netanyahu is himself, that they are a political Islamist organization using terror as their modus operandi, but they are also open to pragmatic political negotiations or to being paid off by Gulf state largesse. Well, that has all of those preconceptions or ideas or analyses are somewhat tossed out the window now, clearly. What has happened speaks for itself. Also, have to tread a very careful line in terms of how we describe the atrocities that have taken place. First of all, some of the things that happened are, I wouldn't say they were indescribable, but they do verge onto a kind of 
pornography of violence that is very difficult to deal with. You know, we all talk about what the the visual impact of ISIS beheadings were and all of this. There's also different sensitivities for an Israeli publication than for people abroad because the people that you're talking about who have been abused in such horrific ways, their friends and family are right here. And some of them don't know all of those details and it would be very, very inappropriate for us to you know, make those kinds of identifications between specific uh, victims and what has happened to them, perhaps before their own family know that story. So there's a kind of editorial function of restraint there. Is there any kind of official censorship that you work under? Well, Israel always has you know, a certain level of military censorship, but generally that uh, relates to active military operations, a specific operation that is considered to be confidential. But that doesn't cover, for instance, the fact that obviously we're reporting in real time about Israeli airstrikes on Gaza or, or things that are happening, uh, you know, gunfights within Israel or the attacks themselves. Esther, can you talk more generally about the, the dilemma of reporting on this long-running conflict and whether Haaretz is different in some respects from other media organizations? I, I think it's right to say that for a long period, Haaretz had correspondence in the West Bank and, and Gaza which was unusual in terms of Israeli news organizations. Sure. Well, we had Amir Haas, was our correspondent, lived in Gaza for many years uh, after Israel disengaged from Gaza. She moved to Ramallah and lives there to this day. So we're the only uh, Israeli uh, news outlet that has someone who actually lives uh, in the Palestinian Authority. But beyond that, we're the only outlet that takes seriously the coverage of what's going on in the West Bank both in terms of Israeli settlers, in terms of Palestinians. You know, this is part of our core bread and butter. This is what we're, we're proud to keep going. That might sound extraordinary that, that, that the Israeli news media, I think you're saying, don't really take the, the coverage of the West Bank and Gaza. No, they, t- they take it seriously, but then in terms of when something happens. So that's very, very different from having someone who is there living uh, in Palestinian society and fluent, obviously, in Arabic and not just coming in perhaps uh, accompanying the Israeli military when it's on so some kind of... So what dimension are they th- thereby missing and, and, and the Israeli population who are following that media? What, what are they missing that you feel you're giving them? Well, I think if you only understand it from uh, reports of terror attacks in the West Bank, then you misunderstand what is actually happening in terms of the occupation itself and what is exactly happening to Palestinians and When something happens like the recent very sharp rise in settler violence against Palestinians, you have no idea of understanding how this has developed and where it has come from. You're basically being confronted all the time by one understanding of a correlation between Palestinians and violence and no understanding about what is the context of the actual day-to-day experience of, of living as a Palestinian. And that is not in any way to justify or legitimize violence. It's to say that without understanding what the mechanisms of Israeli rule are, you don't have a proper uh, lexicon or understanding about any of the major debates about annexation or any of the other big political issues about Israel's future in, in terms of what a political solution could be. Not that that's particularly... Uh, 
high on the agenda right now because what has just happened has clearly put back any tiny glimmer of what the two-state camp or the one-state camp might have thought for perhaps a generation. Esther, could I just ask briefly a couple of practical questions? How useful has social media been to your journalists covering this conflict? Oh, that's a, a difficult issue. On the one hand, it was a survival route for some of the people who were under fire. And that not only alerted journalists, but also the security forces to what was going on. On the other hand, the moment that a conflict like this breaks, then the misinformation engines start running over time. You know, when there already are such horrific images, then the misinformation, you know, can go in very, very poisonous ways as well. And Gaza itself, it, it must be almost impossible to reliably report what's going on. Well, that's been the case for a very, very long time now, ever since Hamas took power. I mean, that obviously there are international media that go in there, but they basically have Hamas minders. And it may be that there are more independent-minded people that they can speak to, but it's an extremely repressive regime. So there's absolutely no sense that now they're in total conflict with Israel, the, the chances of actually getting independent coverage of what's going on from inside Gaza is extremely, extremely small. And that's a big problem for understanding what's going to be happening in the next few days and weeks and months. How do you get around that as a news organization? I mean, you, you said that Amira Haas used to live there, but there's no, no, no Israeli living there now. Well, in the past, we've managed to persuade some independent writers to write for us, often under pseudonyms. Oh, that was a big bum. Sorry, there's a great big uh, bang in the background. But I suppose, you know, we have people, obviously reporters who are fluent in Arabic, so they are following also Palestinian media and social media. You know, in some ways that's as, and there's plenty of visual and other textual sources of various levels of credibility. So it's obviously our job as journalists to triangulate what we're hearing from Israeli sources and from Palestinian sources and to, to do the very best that we can to give an honest explication of what's going on. And do you have policies on whether to talk to Hamas or not? I'm not sure Hamas would ever talk to us for an article. There are certainly reporters uh, that have sources within the Hamas broader leadership, I wouldn't exactly say the, uh, the core group. Obviously Hamas is dead set against any kind of normalisation with Israel, so there could never be anything straight and formal about those kinds of source relationships. They put out press releases every hour or so and threatening also to put out plenty of extremely gory videos on social media as well. Uh, uh, very early in, the, in this crisis, you published a gripping account by one of your journalists, Amir Tibon, who lives in a village very near Gaza and had to shelter for hours in a safe room in the house he was in. It was, in the end, rescued by his father, who was a retired military general. Can you just describe that piece for us? Because it was one of the most extraordinary pieces of journalism I think I've read in recent years. Well, I'll give you some background. First of all, Amir, who's a dear colleague, was my deputy for some time before he became diplomatic correspondent only six months ago. So, you know, we worked very, very closely together. Uh, and they were woken very early in the morning by what sounded like mortar fire, which unfortunately is more or less a common occurrence in some of those border communities, especially in the last few years. 
So they lock themselves into the safe room, which is supposed, you know, this is a kind of reinforced concrete core of these kibbutz buildings. And then they heard that rather than mortify, you wait 10 minutes, you go out. They could sit here firing, and the firing was coming closer and closer and closer, in fact, right up to their window. So then they realized that something much, much more terrible was happening. And at that point, he contacted the Haaretz desk here. He, his battery had already, off his phone was basically running out. And he called two people. He called us at the Haaretz desk to say he was okay for then. And he called his father, who is a retired general in the army, to say, look, we're, we're being besieged. Something very, very bad is happening. And his father said, I'm going to come and get you. So his father, <laughs> I mean, it's just kind of unbelievable. His father is, you know, retired many decades ago, basically made this incredible journey from Tel Aviv, picking up both injured soldiers along the way and taking them to hospital and rescuing survivors of this terrible massacre at an open-air music festival. It's very difficult to explain exactly what was happening that day on Saturday uh, in Israel. It was like, first of all, there was just kind of pandemonium and chaos because something absolutely unprecedented and, and totally surprised was happening but also there were just death squads on all the roads. This is what Hamas was, you know, they're saying that there were more than a thousand bodies of Hamas militants have been found so far. That's probably not the, the full answer, but they were kind of going on all the roads and just shooting up anyone that they could find. Anyway, in the end, he did make it to Emir's kibbutz. Basically commandeered the soldiers that were there and fought his way into the kibbutz to rescue Amir and his family who had been locked inside their safe room for 10 hours, completely in the dark, with no food, with these tiny kids, and managed to rescue them. I can say that we were also living those, I mean, not that it's comparable, but just to give some idea about how a single person's experience is amplified in Israel, obviously we were all living those hours here in the office. We all know, we all knew that he was under attack. You know, and that's the story of one person and his family in a kibbutz where, as they walked out of it, an unknown number of people have been killed and abducted. It's an incredible story, Esther. Uh, how, how is Amir now? Well, he's recuperating with his family in, here yeah. in Tel Aviv. Thank you for talking to us, Esther. I hope you stay safe and there are going to be long days ahead, but we wish you well. Thank you very much. This is Media Confidential and in a moment we'll talk to an award-winning journalist with deep knowledge of the Gaza Strip. Prospect Magazine not only brings you Media Confidential, but also the Prospect Podcast, presented by me, Ellen Halliday, and some of my wonderful colleagues. In each weekly episode, we have an in-depth interview with one of our writers to shed more light on their recent reporting for Prospect magazine and to give you insight into why their story matters. This week's episode is a chat between me and Sam Friedman. Sam is our political writer and he spoke to me just ahead of Keir Starmer's speech at Labour Party conference in Liverpool. 
To be honest, there's nothing sort of dramatic happening outside the uh, official lens that, that isn't happening on stage. There is still obviously a lot of drinking that happens at these things, but the first few I went to 15 years ago, there were lots of drunk people wandering around. Um, I think at Tory conference this year, there were quite a lot of drunk people wandering around trying to drink away their misery. To hear this episode, and many more, including our recent exclusive with the Governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, and our interview with foreign correspondent Lizzie Porter on the current situation in Syria, follow and subscribe to the Prospect Podcast wherever you get your podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This is Media Confidential with Lionel Barber and Alan Rosbridger. And we're examining coverage of the conflict in Israel and Gaza and the freedom of journalists on both sides to report what's happening there. Our next guest, Sarah Helm, knows this volatile part of the world very well indeed, having reported uh, from the Middle East for The Independent. And she is currently writing a book about Gaza. Sarah, do you just want to describe the book that you're writing and the, the themes that it deals with? So I was a Jerusalem correspondent in the 90s, I was there during the Oslo process, and I hadn't been back to Gaza. I'd been back to the West Bank since 1995, which was towards the end when Oslo was beginning to fall apart. I went back in 2014, which was just after the 2014 war on Gaza, to uh, write about the appalling devastation that that caused 2,400 Palestinians dead, including 500 children, etc., and in the course of doing that, I went to do a piece for Newsweek. In the course of reporting on that, I was struck by how unbelievably things had changed. People were no longer talking about the two-state solution in any way whatsoever. What they saw as they sat amidst the rubble of Gaza and were refugees for the second time in tents was they were reminded about 1948, and that's all they wanted to talk about saying, this is just like 1948, we are being erased again. And I started hearing the names of villages from which they had fled in 1948 for the first time. So names like Istud, Barbara, Burer, all these villages long, long forgotten by the rest of the world. And I suddenly thought how extraordinary it is as a reporter in the 90s, I never thought about 1948. We were encouraged not to think about it. The entire world is encouraged not to think about it. Uh, that's the creation of the Israeli state, obviously, in 1948. Exactly. That is the big year when, after the UN partition plan, Israel came into being, but amidst 
uh, a huge um, ethnic cleansing and destruction of Palestinian towns and villages. So I thought that this was the story. In the 1990s, everybody was talking about the two-state solution, if you remember. That's what that was about. And we were interested in the lines from the 1967 war that was going to be divided into two states along those lines largely. And the root cause, in my view, which is what to do about the refugees of 1948, was not addressed in the Oslo process. It was put on one side and it has never been addressed. What were these villages? How were they destroyed? And of course, the way to write that was to go to Gaza many, many times because that's where they all were expelled to. In the coverage of this story, nobody really knows who the people of Gaza are or what is the Gaza Strip. So you'll hear journalists um, covering the story today and they'll say, the people who live in Gaza. They almost never say that they're refugees. There are 2.4 million people in Gaza, of which nearly all are refugees from 1948. And it seems to me that it's absolutely essential to understand that before we can go anywhere. So if we just fast forward to today, it would be very useful, I think, just to hear more about the area. It's a very small, confined area. There are more, as you say, than two million people, many living in horrendous conditions. And it's essentially been under siege for several years cut off, as it were. Yes. I mean, it has evolved. Uh, The people who live in Gaza came from 200 villages, which were over a huge area, which in those days was called the Gaza District. The Gaza District and the Beersheba District were in the south of Palestine. It was the biggest area of Palestine, and it was populated 99% by Arabs. So, And they were peasant farmers, and they lived in this huge area. They were then shunted in 1948 into a tiny strip of land, a maximum something like 26 miles north to south. It lies alongside the Mediterranean on one side, beautiful beaches um, with refugee camps spilling onto them. At the narrowest, I think it's five miles wide and it goes out to 10 miles wide at one point. So it's, it's a tiny strip of land. And they fled there in 1948 because at that time it was deemed safe because it was controlled by the Egyptians at that time at the end of the war. And then it went into Israeli occupation. When Israel seized the West Bank and the Gaza Strip in 1967, it was militarily occupied. So in a sense, it was it was in a prison then. I mean, we use this term prison, but it, it's actually accurate. It sounds like a cliche, but it's not. Anyway, so it was occupied by the Israelis, as was the uh, West Bank, under full military occupation until the uh, peace process got going. And eventually in 2005-06, the uh, Israelis pulled out their military presence from Gaza and, in a sense, handed it over to the Palestinians to run for themselves. And they always claim they no longer have anything to do with Gaza. It is no longer occupied. And as we know, Hamas, soon after that, won an election and took over control in Gaza. I think I I went to Gaza shortly after that period. I agree with you that it's impossible to go there without feeling a tremendous sense of foreboding. In terms of the media and 
what sources of information those who are living in Gaza are exposed to. Is there anything that you could call independent journalism there? Where, where, where are the residents of, of Gaza getting their news from? And would it be fair to say they're living in a kind of bubble of information in, in which they're not really exposed to other sources of information other than those approved sources, as it were? Uh, no, it's actually not true at all. One of the many curious things about Gaza is they're highly educated because the UN runs schools. Also, the government, that there are Hamas government schools too. And the education, and there are four universities there. There's a very, very young population and they are very bright and they are very tech savvy and they all are very, very good at managing the internet, even though they can't charge their phones and stuff lots of the time because the electricity is cut off and they read. And they are very, very up to date, you know, and they watch films, they watch Western films, Western TV programs. And also some people do go in and out, not very many, but some do. So, no, they are very well informed. But, of course, Hamas controls the Gaza Strip with a rod of iron and they try to limit the information that's coming in to some extent. But it's not one of their priorities Hamas is, 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 is not liked by most of the population. Quite a lot of them hate Hamas because m- many of the population in Gaza, particularly the many, many young, are liberal minded. The women particularly cannot abide the sort of attitude towards women, the controls that are put upon them. But they also have a lot of support. It's a very difficult thing to describe. For example, when Hamas was elected in in 2006, I always ask people, you know, who they voted for. And an awful lot of the most wonderfully enlightened people will say they voted for Hamas. You know, there was no other way out. The military solution appeared to be the only solution. The world wasn't listening. Every other solution had been screwed up. And so they voted for Hamas because they thought maybe Hamas can achieve something. So there's this mixture of admiration desperation and shame at having to support Hamas. But they do. And uh, just for the record, um, in the the league tables of press freedom uh, compiled by Reporters Sans Frontier, uh, Israel is placed 97th in the world uh, in terms of press freedom. And Palestine, which doesn't separate um, the West Bank from Gaza, is 156th. Sarah, you wrote a piece in December 2017, which was published in the New York Review of Books, which I remember reading at the time, and I've reread it over the weekend, where you really capture the sense of desperation. You identify that part of the root cause are these the refugee problem. And I remember reading it and thinking, this is going to explode. When you heard what had happened, were you surprised at the way in which Hamas just overwhelmed Israeli defences? I was not surprised that something huge happened because something huge happens every three years. I started writing this book in 2014. There have been two wars in between, nothing like this one, but 1,000 people in in Gaza killed in, in 2020. So, you know, they happen. So I'm not, it, after a certain time, you expect it. I'm absolutely flabbergasted by what Hamas did this time. There was the Right of Return March, a huge protest, peaceful protest, you might remember, which I also wrote a piece about, 
in 2018, 2019, I think, when they went up to the fence, you know, huge people in a huge sort of peaceful mass, mass protest. And they said, we're going to break through the fence. I mean, they were kind of joking. They knew they wouldn't. And of course, the Israelis were up there on the fence before they got anywhere near with the snipers and they just opened fire and shot them and shot them and killed them and shot them in the knees. But the fact, therefore, that Hamas was able to get through, actually, I have not yet read a good analysis of how it was done. They got through the fence. They were well armed. They're still firing rockets. The most extraordinary thing of all was they got into the southern Israeli kibbutzim and the Israeli military were not there. Even now, they seem to be mopping up. I cannot believe it. The other thing that is extraordinary, I think, about what they did was, as, as everyone has said this, you know, they, they, they managed to get around all the intel- Israeli intelligence and the Iron Dome and stuff. But where they chose to do their attack. These little kibbutzim around the edge of Gaza sit on 48 villages. Re'im, which was near where the music festival was, is on the land of a Palestinian destroyed village called Ma'in. And I know the family from that village very well. Salman Abusita is a very well-known um, historian and Palestinian cartographer, etc., who has mapped the whole story of his village. That was viciously erased in 1948. And a lot of the family are in Gaza and live within five miles of their village. Nahaloz is another one that is on a destroyed village, very close to this area. is the site of a Palestinian pre-48 village called Burair, where there was a horrific massacre in 1948. Young men all executed, the whole village, village burned, 120 people killed. And a lot of you have to remember that a lot of these Hamas people obviously come from these villages. They all the people in Gaza have a map of their village on their wall. Nowadays, journalists, by the way, you asked about how journalists operate in the old days and in the 90s. You know, we used to get into great those great big old Mercedes taxis packed with sort of Gaza women who'd been up to the market in Jerusalem to sell their chickens or whatever. And we'd go back down and people were coming and going all the time. Gaza was connected to Jerusalem and it was absolutely connected to the West Bank. Now, nobody goes there. So when I go there, I'm going around trying to find the survivors of 1948 and they live all over the Gaza Strip in little camps and little places. Western journalists never do that any longer. Sarah, Sarah, I think that's an incredibly important aspect to this story. But just as a both as a journalist and as somebody following the way the media covers a story like this, there would be some that say, you know, in the wake of an obscene atrocity that we've seen in the last few days, all that's very interesting, but it, it even talking about it feels to some like justification that you're trying to, not you, but the people who try and bring in the context are, are trying to in some way justify it. How as a journalist do you get past that line that, that in, in trying to explain uh, an atrocity, you look as though you're in some way defending it? Can you just talk about the, the journalistic dilemma there, which you must have faced as a correspondent? Uh, well, one way you deal with it is you write a book. <laughs> because then you can take a bigger picture. But in the real world in of the real media world, who, who have got three minutes in yes, which to, yes. to do a package. Well, I think you have to be aware of one thing first, and that is that as with all these conflicts, but this one especially, 
there is a narrative war going on the entire time. And the uh, Israelis and the Zionist uh, leadership before them are brilliant at the, the narrative war. So watch for that always. Secondly, don't fall into traps. So you see this all the time now, and there have been some very interesting examples of it. Journalist asks interviewee, Palestinian or someone like me, but do you condemn what happened? And of course, most people have to say yes, because of course we condemn it. What happened in Reim is absolutely staggering. I mean, you know, I used to cover the suicide bombings that were going on in after Oslo in the 90s, you know, and, and the worst of them, I think maybe 50 Israelis killed. This is 900 in one place. It is huge, appalling. It is a massacre. There has been criticism, as you can imagine, uh, of, I think, Channel 4 News for having someone from Hamas on. Can you just do one minute on why journalistically we have to talk to Hamas? Yes. I mean, the, the, the refusal to talk to Hamas means that nobody understands what they want or how they operate. In, in these conflicts, as you know, ultimately you have to talk to the so-called terrorists. It happened with the IRA, it happened with the FARC, and with countless organizations. That is the only way to find a way through. If you don't talk to them, they are isolated themselves and it is far more dangerous. It is absolutely essential and we will talk to Hamas. There's absolutely no doubt about it. We have to get to that point. Hamas are not going to go away Israel can't destroy them. You know, three will be recruited every time uh, one is killed. The usual story. But by blocking them off and refusing to talk to them, there can absolutely be no solution. So, Lionel, we've had two points of view from people who have lived their lives and studied so much uh, uh, about this conflict and inevitably it's just a, a tiny slither of opinion ab about this much contested issue but i thought in their different ways they highlighted the extreme difficulty of reporting this region with proper nuance and context let alone in the middle of the kind of uh, atrocity and slaughter that we've witnessed uh, since Saturday. Yes, indeed. And I thought Esther made a, an arresting presentation to us in that, you know, she's sitting in the offices there under attack. Uh, you could hear the bombs. And in that environment, it's so difficult to remain neutral. And indeed, I, I would say that most of the media, particularly in Israel, won't want to be neutral. They want. They will say, we are all Israelis now, even if we have some doubts and reservations about Bibi Netanyahu, uh, his assault on the judiciary. They will say, we have to rally round a national unity government and we have to confront unadulterated terror um, against our, our fellow Israelis. I mean, there, there are... Some parallels, I, I, I think, this is always an extremely difficult thing for the media. But the, the U.S. media after nine eleven, you could you could say, I, I guess, of the British media generally, uh, a twenty or thirty year IRA campaign, and there was no doubt that British media felt, of course, uh, incredibly hostile to the IRA, 
And yet there was some kind of responsibility to let readers and viewers understand the reasons for why the IRA campaign was happening. And these are always very difficult judgments to make. Indeed. And it's always difficult, too, to draw historical analogies. And again, Esther was interesting. She really politely rejected the parallels with 9-11. It's not just in terms of the scale of the slaughter and the number of casualties, but just this is a particular conflict. Uh, We heard from Sarah how deep it goes, the formation of the uh, Israeli state in 1948, disputed land, millions of refugees, Palestinian refugees. This is a unique and complex conflict. The other point is, you know, people have drawn analogies with the Holocaust, the way Jews were rounded up, killed. You've seen this. Katyn Forest, where whole Polish officer class was killed by, by the Russians in World War II. None of these really does justice to what's happened. Um, somehow, journalists have got to find a way of providing context and deep context. I certainly felt that listening to, to Sarah, who um, is extremely knowledgeable on the history going back to 1948, of, of course, arguably the the roots of this conflict go far beyond that but in a quick package you're you're trying to uh describe report on the events of the last week it's extremely difficult to get that kind of context in and as we said in our discussion with sarah it can almost look as though you're justifying uh the the attacks by trying to give that context yeah neutrality balance it's really i think it's impossible in the the immediate aftermath of of such slaughter. And Esther gave a very important warning about how journalists should cover this, talking about the pornography of violence, the way in which Hamas and friends of Hamas, allies, are circulating images on video, which frankly are not just disgusting and appalling, but they're designed to infuse terror in the population and, and a sense of resignation. In the public, so journalists need to be and editors need to exercise extreme caution. The other dilemma, a familiar one, uh, which does go back to the the troubles in Northern Ireland, we both remember Mrs. Thatcher banning news organisations from showing Sinn Fein spokesmen uh, that their voices had to be voiced by actors because she talked about the oxygen of publicity. And again, there's a very narrow line between understanding the grievances and the, the, the roots of conflicts and that business of, of actually handing a microphone to people who arguably many people would, would not want to hear about or thought they think should not have that voice. Well, I do think we need to examine, if you like, ideological first principles of an organisation like Hamas, which is the destruction of the Israeli state. What's happened is a scale of violence, a slaughter of innocence, which, which doesn't really suggest any form of pragmatism at the moment. And we need to examine that and report fully on motivation, what's going on here. And indeed, uh, those who are supporting Hamas, like Iran. And we'll hear more about that in coming weeks. If you've got any questions for Lionel and me about the media, how it works, how it could work better, who controls it, or perhaps about the big characters in the industry, past and present, 
do email them to mediaconfidential, all one word, at prospectmagazine, all one word, .co.uk. And we'll answer a few of them in a special episode at some point in the future. Thank you for listening to Media Confidential, brought to you by Prospect Magazine and Fresh Air. The producer is Danny Garlick. Remember to listen and follow us wherever you get your podcasts and check us out on Twitter stroke X2. Our handle there is at Media Conf Pod. There are new episodes every Thursday. See you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.